0: 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week some news from the United States, from Hungary, Russia, Peru. And unfortunately, this week, instead of bringing to you a See You in Hell segment celebrating some dead fascists, I'm going to be talking about two living fascists. In the United States, we have some recent leaks from the United States military that show that training documents have listed socialists and Black Lives Matter activists as terrorists, uh, equivalent to enemies of the state such as, you know, Al Qaeda or, you know, armed groups like that. This is obviously ridiculous, racist, and it's horrible, nonsense, bullshit, um, but it's also not surprising, right? We're seeing a rightward turn, not only in United States governance and the governance of many countries throughout the world, but we're also seeing many parts of the United States establishment gearing up for something that will probably deserve to be called a dirty war. Uh, that is a, uh, an extra legal fight, between the right wing and the left wing in the United States, uh, over state power. Uh, this will only escalate as the right wing continues to perceive itself to be under the threat of, uh, left wing power, uh, as the power of the left grows in the United States. Uh, the January 6th attempted coup is a perfect piece of evidence of this. And speaking of the coup, we got some more, uh, Fallout uh, for those who participated in the attempted coup, uh, the storming of the United States Capitol on January 6th of this year. Uh, on Wednesday, Anna Morgan Lloyd was the first person uh, to be formally sentenced uh, for her uh, participation in the January 6th attempted coup. She won't be serving any time uh, and pled guilty of a misdemeanor. Uh, this is all according to the New York Times. Uh, her like testimony in her 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 accounting of herself uh, for her behavior in the coup was that she she was sort of like oh i was like bamboozled i was tricked into participating in this military coup like she came to the capital to hear donald trump speak and then i guess got galvanized and caught up in the moment and stormed a government building uh with people who were armed and violent you know cuz they like broke into a locked government building uh, and were chanting things about, you know, like killing and kidnapping members of Congress and the vice president. Uh, But, you know, she, you know, she said that she didn't really know what she was doing. She wasn't there on purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, Additional prosecution uh, for people who participated in the coup include uh, Graydon Young. Uh, who is one of the members of the Oath Keepers, uh, which is a paramilitary organization uh, that spans the United States? And several of the people who are currently on trial or under investigation for their participation in the coup are members of the Oath Keepers. Uh, specifically, there's a group of about a dozen of them uh, who have been accused of conspiracy of actually coordinating with one another in order to make the coup happen, like to organize it and to make sure that people actually entered the Capitol building. Uh, he has pled guilty, uh, and will be testifying in a, you know, series of grand jury investigations and other, uh, court appearances, uh, regarding the participation of his, uh, fellow members of the Oath Keepers and also presumably contacts with other people. Because, uh, remember, there's still a lot of stuff about the January 6th coup that we don't know. Now, we don't really know the full extent of contact and interaction uh, between these outside forces, you know, the fascists on the ground and members of the Donald Trump administration or, uh, you know, other parts of the military security apparatus. Uh, Were they in contact with some people in the Capitol Police Force? Uh, Were they in contact with some people in the DOD? Uh, These are things that we're going to find out uh, as the uh, months roll on. Outside of the United States, the UEFA Cup, which is a European wide soccer and football championship, is proving an opportunity for Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, uh, to test his power. Uh, I talked about last week how the country of Hungary has essentially banned all mention of queerness, gayness, lesbian, uh, transgender, anybody uh, and any person uh, who is not straight and gender conforming. Uh, from television uh, before the watershed and also from all media intended for children in any capacity. Uh, This has led to some conflict because this means that there are like uh, people in other countries who are hosting UEFA matches and want to, you know, have uh, rainbow designs on their stadiums or, you know, in other parts of their building um, because of Pride Month. Um, but because Hungary prohibits this uh, and prohibits the broadcast of it, uh, UEFA has asked them to stop. Uh, so these are these are people who are running football matches or the owners of stadiums in other countries uh, who are being asked to conform to Hungary's anti-LGBTQ standards. Uh, unfortunately, this will probably be just the first of many series of checks and conflicts um, between the European Union and other European wide institutions um, and Viktor Orban's uh, extremely disgusting prejudicial and oppressive government forces uh speaking of disgusting and prejudicial government forces uh myanmar uh, a country that has recently fallen back into military rule uh, after a successful coup uh, this year uh february the first has reopened real serious ties with Russia. Uh, the leaders of the Myanmar government have visited the Kremlin, have visited Moscow, uh, which has essentially legitimized its new government by deciding to replicate pre-existing military uh, connections uh, with the Myanmar government. This is especially important to the government of Myanmar because they are currently seeing a wave of anti-government violence and uprisings against the coup government. Uh, exactly how this is all going to shake out uh, remains to be seen. Finally, in Peru, we have a victory uh, for a leftist candidate and a defeat uh, for Keiko Fujimori, uh, who is the daughter of Peru's most recent dictator, Alberto Fujimori. Uh, Fujimori, that is, Keiko Fujimori, uh, placed second. Uh, against her opponent. Uh, she lost by about 44,000 votes, an extremely slim margin, not unlike the previous losing margin that she had the last time she ran for president, uh, when she also lost by just like a razor thin margin. Uh, this reporting I'm reading is coming from The Guardian. Uh, she has been claiming in a not un-Trumpian way uh, that this election was stolen from her. You know, she says that, well, I lost by 44,000 votes, but 500,000 votes were fraudulent and should be eliminated. Where does she think those fraudulent votes were cast? Well, they were cast uh, in rural parts of Peru, uh, according to her. Uh, And Peru is a country that is extremely geographically segregated with uh, primarily uh, indigenous uh, and people of indigenous descent, uh, folks living outside of the major urban areas of Lima and its environs. And these are precisely the parts of Peru that voted for her opponent. Uh, this should be extremely reminiscent to anybody who was paying attention to Donald Trump's claims about how he actually did win the election last year. And that that was because all of these fraudulent votes were cast where, well, where people who aren't white live. You know, he thought that all these fraudulent votes were cast in places like Georgia, for example, uh, I would argue that probably Fuhimori would have said all of this shit without Donald Trump as an example, you know, as a predecessor. But the fact is that his example, his pulling this kind of crap in the United States, uh, which, like it or not, is the model that many countries follow for how they organize their democracy, uh, it really legitimizes this kind of rhetoric uh, by people like Fuhimori. We're not going to see the end of this anytime soon. Uh, This is also emblematic of the just centuries of racial and regional bias and discrimination by the right wing in peru um international observers have fully recognized this election uh she lost in a fair election Um, but it still remains to be seen exactly how the establishment and the right wing in general in peru uh, is going to react to this loss so I usually close this podcast with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the death of prominent fascists and right-wing figures throughout history. Uh, but this week, I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm going to be talking about two fascists who are, unfortunately, still alive. Uh, one of them is from France, and the other one is from the United States. Uh, the one from France is Jean-Marie Le Pen, who was born this week in history, June 20th, 1928. Le Pen is the, or was, excuse me, uh, the president of the National Front, uh, France's leading far-right party. Uh, He was its president from 1972 to 2011. Le Pen was rejected from World War II anti-Nazi fighting due to his age. uh, And in college, where he studied law, uh, he fell in with monarchists and other right-wing forces. Uh, he later joined the French Foreign Legion, uh, where he fought in Vietnam, or as the French called it, Indochina, and also in the Suez, uh, although he arrived after after the, uh, the ceasefire had already been signed. Uh, and then after his military service, he made a turn into right-wing political life. Uh, he was a prominent uh, political commentator and uh, strategist uh, for various right-wing political forces in the mid-20th century uh, before his entrance into politics as a candidate and party man himself. Uh, His politics are pretty much textbook right-wing continental European politics. He's anti-EU. He's anti-immigrant. He's a Holocaust denier. uh, He's discriminatory and racist against uh, people who practice Islam and people who are from uh, the Middle East or Africa. Uh, He is no longer a monarchist uh, because uh, he is probably most famous uh, for appearing in like half a dozen presidential elections in France's history uh, from the 1970s up until the 2000s. He started out gaining very, very, very low vote shares, uh, but gained ground in the 1980s and 90s, uh, leading up to his biggest triumph, a second place finish in 2002, uh, which brought him into the second round of French presidential voting. Uh, France, like many other countries, has a two-round presidential election system in which the top two vote getters in the first round uh, enter the second round. Now Le Pen was uh, like roundly defeated in that second round in 2002, but the fact that he made it after having started essentially as a like outsider nobody fascist uh, only a couple decades earlier uh, was a real indicator of the power that the French right had gained, uh, especially after the uh, relative death of the left in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Finally, Le Pen was expelled from the party, uh, from the National Front Party, uh, as it tried to, you know, do some non-fascist rebranding in the wake of its takeover by his daughter, uh, Marie Le Pen. Uh he was like expelled from this party uh and is now the leader of a much more uh piddly right-wing party uh that is not really a player in French national elections. Uh so hopefully someday, Jean-Marie Le Pen, we will see you in hell. And finally, from the United States, I'm talking about a guy named Curtis Yarvin, uh, although uh you might know him better. By his uh, more common online moniker, Mincius Moldbug, uh, born, well, not exactly this week in history, but super close, uh, you know, I wanted to put these two together, uh, born June 25th, 1973, Uh, Yarvin was a really precocious kid, uh, a techie, a math genius. Uh, he claims to have been a red diaper baby, uh, as in, you know, both of his parents were like, you know, leftists back in the sixties and seventies. Uh, he moved to Silicon Valley, uh, after, uh, studying, you know, computer science and mathematics and stuff like that, uh, where he was enamored of the hyper libertarianism of Silicon Valley in the eighties and nineties. Uh, he then transitioned from a like, you know, hyper, you know, capitalist libertarianism uh, to reactionism. Uh, he became a self-avowed reactionary uh, and using his moniker Mencius Moldbug became the father of a very online philosophy uh, known as the Dark Enlightenment. Uh, he promulgated this uh, philosophy on a blog that is now largely defunct uh, called Unqualified Reservations. What a fucking name, Jesus Christ. Um, essentially, uh, Yarvin claims that democracy is a failed experiment uh, and that the United States and indeed most societies in the world uh, should return to elite rule. Uh, That the United States, uh, the experiment of democracy has failed uh, essentially because the people in it cannot be convinced of, you know, doing exactly what they should be doing, doing the most optimal thing. uh, And that instead, the country should be ruled by a society of technocratic elites, uh, essentially ruled by Silicon Valley, ruled by the powerful. Uh Jarvin is an actual reactionary like I mean like old time religion shit. Uh he is a conservative to the point that he can't exactly be called a fascist quite um because fascists uh typically believe in at least some kind of mass political participation uh whereas Jarvin doesn't really want that. You know, he wants something more like a return to a like imagined medieval way of organizing things uh, that would promote the power of a small group of elites who are like separated out from society, you know, almost in a like sort of uh, platonic philosopher kink type way. Uh, Anyway, uh, Yarvin is unfortunately a relatively influential guy uh, he has supposed contact with Steve Bannon, uh, Trump's former, uh, you know, top advisor and chief of staff. And he has real direct conflict, uh, with Peter Thiel, uh, who is a prominent venture capitalist and sort of like political commentator, wannabe politician, uh, in California and Silicon Valley. Uh, so Curtis Yarvin, maybe someday we'll see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts, Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you found this podcast useful, educational, inspiring, terrifying, uh, please like, share, and subscribe uh, on whatever podcast listener you used uh please share with friends family and comrades Uh, and if you found it especially useful check out my patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism that's 15 minutes of fascism all one word if you have any questions comments concerns corrections uh, my gmail is 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com all right i will talk to you next week